we haven't met, uh, my name is Joe Ash Thomas, and uh, thanks to Pastor Matt for that. Sorry about that. There we go. Um, yeah, if we haven't met, my name is Joe Ash Thomas, and uh, yeah, I've had the joy of serving with IJM all over the world uh, for the past past eight years now. And as you just watched in this video, IJM is the world's largest anti-trafficking organization, but we're also Christian. In fact, we do this work because of our Christian faith, and because of our biblical call to seek justice for people in oppression. So in our time together, I'm going to share a little bit about our work at IJM, but we're also going to talk about the God of the Bible, this God of justice. But first, I want to introduce you to someone. This is William Carey. Now, William Carey was one of the first Western missionaries to the country of India, the country I was born and raised in. He's also known as the father of modern missions. But William Carey arrived in India in 1800 to preach the gospel by doing Bible translation work. But just a few months into his time as a missionary, William Carey witnessed something that would change the course of his ministry in India forever. William Carey watched helplessly his first Hindu funeral. And he watched helplessly as a young widow was brought out alive and burned alive next to her dead husband. Now, obviously, this was a pretty horrifying experience for William Carey to observe. But as if that wasn't horrifying enough, William Carey found out to his dismay that this practice of bride burning was actually pretty systemic all across northern India at that time in the 1800s. Now here's the tension that William Carey faced. You see, William Carey was sent there to preach the gospel by doing Bible translation work, right? But now he'd been confronted with this injustice that he never knew about the systemic injustice of bride-burning. Now, what would, what would you do if you were in William Carey's shoes? Would you just preach the gospel, or would you just seek justice? Just preach the gospel, or just seek justice? If you have your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. And... I'm actually going to invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God together. So I'm going to read this for us from the CSB, uh, but feel free to follow along, and uh, I'll pray for us after I read the scripture. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. 
Verse 2, listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on Him. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? This whole head is hurt, and this whole heart is sick. From the sole of the foot even to the head, no spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts, and festering sores, not cleansed, bandaged, or soothed with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities burn down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation, like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me? Asked the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies, I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you uh, for the privilege of getting to serve this church community. God, as this is my first time teaching at a church in Ottawa, I'm reminded of Hank and Anita, two missionaries from Ottawa that my family would host in India when I was a kid growing up. And what a joy it is for me to now get to come to this city and minister to your people here, your body here. So God, I pray that over these next few minutes, all other distractions would fade away, that your voice would be the loudest voice in this room through your word, through your spirit. Now I'm going to invite you, if you're comfortable, you pray and you talk to God in your hearts and you ask God to teach you something new from his word this morning. Let's do that for a few moments in our hearts.
Now I'm going to ask that you pray for me, that my words would be helpful in pointing you to Jesus, the God of the Bible, this morning. Let's do that for a few moments in our hearts. Father, we love you. Use this time for your glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Thanks. Today we're going to look at three things, if you're taking notes. A crisis, a command, and a choice. A crisis, a command, and a choice. Now here's the crisis, in case you haven't picked it up already. We live in a world that's full of sin, right? In fact, one of the most prominent forms of sin that we grapple with understanding is the sin of injustice. Sin of injustice. That's the crisis we're going to explore this morning. Now, before we move any further, I want to pause and provide us with Christian definitions for justice and injustice. I don't need to tell you this because you live in Ottawa, but... The reality is that the words justice and injustice have been politically hijacked these days, right? By both the left and the right for their political purposes. So let me try to redeem these words for us by providing us with a Christian definition for justice and injustice. Because the gospel is political in its own way, right? It's about a good king, the king of kings, King Jesus, and about his kingdom, his good, just kingdom. And it's about us, his citizens, who he calls to restore and renew all things. So what's justice? Justice is giving to each person their due. Justice is giving to each person the good things that God intended for them. Jesus came to give us life and life to the fullest. Amen? So this taking away of the fullness of life that God always intended for us, this taking away of the freedom that God always intended for us is an act of injustice. If you don't like my definition of justice, I won't be offended because this is actually Augustine's definition of justice. So if that's justice, then what's injustice? Well, injustice is the opposite of justice. Injustice is taking away from someone the good things that God intended for them. I'd like to zoom in on the sin of injustice a bit more by talking about one type of injustice that we at IJM take on. This injustice of modern slavery. There are 50 million people in slavery right now. Think about that. 50 million men, women, and children made in the image of God in slavery and violence right now. Now, just to put that number in context for us a little bit, Canada has 38 million people. So what I am telling us this morning is that there are more people in slavery around the world than there are Canadians. Think about that for a second. In fact, one of the most pervasive forms of slavery in the world right now is happening in a country that's near and dear to many of you, 
this beautiful country called the Philippines. You know, before the internet, criminals had to physically go into a bar or a brothel to sexually abuse little children. But today, because of the internet, criminals located anywhere in Canada can abuse little children online in the Philippines without even leaving their homes. Here's, here's how this works. Someone here in Ottawa or Ontario can find a trafficker online in the Philippines through Facebook or PayPal or WhatsApp and can pay as little as $50 an hour to direct the live-streamed abuse of little children. Now, these perpetrators may be shielded by the virtual nature of the internet. But let me assure you, from the perspective of these children, there's absolutely nothing that's virtual about this crime. Because little boys and little girls are forced to perform sex acts on themselves or on each other or with an adult or they're abused in other violent ways that I'm not even going to begin to describe in church this morning. There are an estimated 750,000 predators online right now looking for children in the Philippines to prey on. Over the past 10 years, my colleagues at IJM Philippines, with the support of our local church partners and our government partners, we've, we've helped rescue over 1,000 little children from this type of slavery. And these are children of all ages. But just so you know, the youngest child that we ever rescued was two months old. So here's a question for us. What does the God of the Bible have to say about children being sexually exploited online right now? What does the God of the Bible have to say about the 50 million people in slavery around the world right now? Does the God of the Bible, does the gospel of Jesus Christ have anything to say about these things? Here's the reality. Yes, he does. And yes, Scripture does. And you see this, you see God saying this over and over again all throughout the Bible, both in the Old and in the New Testament. You see, the Bible teaches us that God is a God of justice. This is the story of the Bible. You see, so many times you and I get so caught up in studying the little verses of the Bible here and there, and the little chapters and the little books of the Bible here and there, that we somehow miss out on the big picture of the Bible. And we miss out on the big picture of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So let me do this. Let me try to recap the entire Bible for us in two minutes, okay? Don't time me. We'll see how it goes. But in the beginning, as we all know, in Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. But then in Genesis 3, you see a plot twist. You see sin entering the world, and sin starts to corrupt God's good creation. But God is a gracious and compassionate God. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. 
So God raises up Israel to show his just character, to be his covenant community here on earth. But Israel can't get it together because of their sin. So God raises rulers to embody his just character. But these rulers get corrupted because of their idolatry, right? They start to worship other idols, and so they start to oppress people who are poor instead of protecting people who are poor. And they start to protect the wicked instead of punishing the wicked. But God is a gracious and compassionate God. So God raises up prophets, and he sends these prophets to these rulers, prophet after prophet, including the prophet Isaiah. He sends these prophets to these rulers to call these people back to God and to call the people of Israel back to God's just character. But these rulers and the people of Israel reject these prophets And that's how the Old Testament ends. And then there's a period of silence for 400 years. And it seems like this is where the story of the Bible ends. But as we know, this is not where the story of the Bible ends. Because God so loved the world, his creation, that he sends his only begotten son, Jesus to proclaim the good news of his kingdom. And this same Jesus promises to establish a new kingdom here on earth, where all, this kingdom that we see through his church, that's established through his church, that's fully consummated when Jesus returns. This kingdom that we see in Revelation, where every tear is wiped away, where all oppression shall cease, where God's justice is fully restored here on earth as it is in heaven. This is the full gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the full good news of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the gospel, or the good news, is also that Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back to redeem and restore all of creation from our sin. And he'll do this by redeeming and restoring broken people like you and I first. See, the gospel isn't just a set of ideas that we believe with our mind. The gospel is also intrusive good news that changes everything about the way we live our lives. You see, there there are two camps of Christians in the church right now. The Christians who say, just preach the gospel, and the Christians who say, just seek justice. Just preach the gospel or just seek justice. This was the choice that William Carey faced in Kolkata. Do I just preach the gospel or do I just seek justice? I would submit to you that both of these camps are wrong. Both of these camps are wrong. You see, A proper reading and understanding of Scripture leads us to do both. Preach the gospel and seek justice. Seek justice and preach the gospel. The lie that the enemy would have many of us in the church believe today is that we can only choose one, and we can only be faithful to one. But that is simply not true. Because rescued people, rescue people. 
and free people, free people. So we talked about a crisis, the sin of injustice, and specifically the injustice of modern-day slavery. Let's now talk about the command. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 1, and let's actually dive deeper into this text, verse by verse. I'm going to take us through three movements of this text. I'm going to highlight three main points from this text, okay? Here's the first point. Sin is never just individual. It's also public and social. In verse 2, God says through his prophet Isaiah, I have raised children and brought them up. God is saying here that he has nurtured Israel like a parent. Of all the nations on earth, God had chosen Israel to reveal his special revelation to and through the word of God, Jesus, but also the word of God, scripture, the Bible. And like Israel, God has also chosen you and I as the church to be a part of his covenant community, the church, the body of Christ here on earth until he returns. But then comes the plot twist, Israel's rebellion. The next verse says, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. In his commentary on Isaiah chapter 1, John Calvin says that God is making a point here in verse 3. You see, according to Calvin, God is telling Israel that even the dumb beasts, the dumb animals of the field, know their owner and their master. But the people of Israel do not know their master. They do not act like they know their master by the way they live their lives towards their neighbors. They do not understand. But Calvin also says something, something else that's important here. Calvin argues that God is using this farming analogy to tell the people of Israel that even the ox and the donkey are less likely to oppress others made in their image and likeness, other oxes and other donkeys. But the people of Israel in their rebellion have started to oppress their own fellow image bearers who also bear the image of God. And this is unacceptable to God. Verse 4, O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. What's God doing here? God is calling the nation of Israel out for the evils that they do in public. Specifically, their sin of injustice. Brothers and sisters, sin isn't just private and personal. It's also public and social and systemic. Because broken people create broken systems and broken institutions that also need to be redeemed with the light of the gospel. And he goes on to say why. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. Here's the thing. 
When we abandon God, we act out in rebellion against God, and we oppress our fellow image bearers in so doing. When our cities and when our nations turn their backs on the Holy One of Israel, we act out in rebellion, and we end up oppressing those around us. You know, there's a reason why Jesus gave us the great commandment. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And they go hand in hand together. Because when we fail to love God, we end up not loving our neighbor. We end up oppressing our neighbors. You know, there's a reason why both the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek use the same words for righteousness and justice interchangeably. Because public righteousness always manifests itself in justice. And public justice is a form of righteousness. Verse 6, From the sole of the foot, even to the head, no spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts, and festering sores, not cleansed, bandaged, or soothed with oil. What's God saying here? God is saying that the injustice of Israel has deeply corrupted their entire nation. From their rulers, their head, to their people, to their foot. You see, injustice is just like any other sin. And if we don't deal with sin, it'll deal with us, right? So we have to take on injustice as the church. We cannot turn a blind eye towards injustice. We have to deal with it, especially when we become aware of it. But injustice doesn't just corrupt our nation and our world. It also corrupts our worship. That brings us to my second point. Inaction and silence towards injustice corrupts our worship. Inaction and silence towards injustice corrupts our worship. Let's jump to verse 11. What are all your sacrifices to me? Asked the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. What's God doing here? Doesn't God command the people of Israel to worship him in this way, in the law? Doesn't God command us, the church, to worship him? Yes, he does. He does. You see, but God is making a bigger point here. God is telling us that he doesn't really need our worship if it's tainted with hypocrisy. God wants our hearts. And when we allow injustice to take place around us, when we're complicit in injustice with our inaction, it corrupts our hearts and it corrupts our worship. Brothers and sisters, seeking justice is an act of worship. Let me say that again. Seeking justice is an act of worship. Because when we seek justice, 
We present before God a pure and undefiled form of worship, as we see in James. A form of worship that greatly pleases the Lord. But here's the part that's really scary to me personally. Verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Here's my third point. Inaction and silence towards injustice hinders our prayers. Inaction and silence towards injustice hinders our prayers. I want us to get this. When we're silent about injustice, it hinders our prayers. When we participate in injustice, both by our active participation and our passive participation, we're hindering our own prayers. Think about that for a second. But let's move to God's command. What does God want us to do in light of all this diagnosis, this information? Verse 16, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. You know, the Puritans had a saying, and the saying went on the lines of, you know, the best way to forget about a bad thing is to replace it with a more beautiful thing. This is something that people dealing with addictions hear in addiction therapy all the time, right? The best way to forget a bad habit is to replace it with a good habit. And that's what God is commanding us to do in this text. You see, the best way to stop doing evil is by replacing it, by learning to do good. And the best way to fight our public sin of complicity and injustice is to start seeking justice. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor, verse 17. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the, plead the widow's cause. The God of justice commands us to pursue justice. The God of justice commands us to correct the oppressor. The God of justice commands us to defend the rights of the fatherless, to plead the widow's cause. You see, seeking justice isn't optional for us as Christians. No. Seeking justice is not something that only some of us are called to do, like IJM or Pastor Matt or your elders or your missions committee. No, no, no. This is a command. This is a command for all of us who have received the gospel. And just like with any command, we have a choice. So we talked about a crisis and a command. If the crisis is that the sin of injustice is rampant, and the command from God is to seek justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, and here's the choice. We can either obey this command, or we can choose to disobey this command and ignore it. So now that you know all this, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? I want us to challenge, I want to challenge us to prioritize seeking biblical justice. There are 50 million people right now 
who are waiting in darkness for hope. You and I have hope. We have the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will we be faithful to this gospel by seeking justice and sharing this hope? Here's how I want to challenge us to seek biblical justice. One specific application. Give generously. Give generously. Now, why give, why give generously? We're generous towards others because Jesus was first generous towards us. Right? We're generous towards others because God the Father was first generous to us by giving us his son, Jesus. We're generous towards people who are physically oppressed because Jesus was first generous to us while we were still oppressed by our sin. We're generous towards people in slavery because Jesus was first generous to us while we were still enslaved by our sin. Now, the first place that I want to challenge you to be generous towards is your local church. I don't know if you realize this, but your church does so much justice and mercy work through your missions budget, through your giving, with organizations like IJM and our partners like Compassion. In fact, your church is part of a larger denomination across Canada called the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists. And over the past many years, fellowship churches like yours and the fellowship denomination has partnered with IJM Philippines to rescue and restore hundreds of children from online sexual exploitation. In fact, IJM is the official global justice partner for the, for the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists across Canada. And they're one of, one of our dearest partners that I enjoy working with. You know, when we started helping Filipino authorities rescue and restore uh, these, these children, we realized that there was a key gap in the justice system, this gap of social services. We realized that we could, we could only rescue as many children as there were aftercare homes for. Or borrowing language from the parable of the Good Samaritan, we could only rescue as many children as there was room in the inn. And back then, forget about rooms in the inn. There simply weren't enough inns to take these children in. There simply weren't enough aftercare homes. So what do we do? We went to the local church in the Philippines. And we brought together church leaders from every denomination, and we challenged them to open up an aftercare ministry each. And they did. And they did. And guess what? The Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists, made up of churches just like yours, helped fund some of these aftercare ministries. So let me encourage you to keep being generous through your tithe. And maybe even prayerfully consider increasing your tithe so that your church is able to do more missions partnerships like this around the world. Now I know that some of you are listening to me and you're thinking, Joash, I love that my church is involved. I love that my denomination is involved. But what can I do to get involved with IJM? How can I get involved? How can, how can I help these children in the Philippines or around the world. On the screen is a QR code. And I want you to take out your phones and scan this QR code. Right now. 
And as you, as you do that, let me explain what you're looking at. So we at IJM Canada have something called a Freedom Partner Program. Now, what are Freedom Partners? Freedom Partners are generous IJM supporters who give $50 a month or more to fund urgent rescue needs around the world. Now, Freedom Partners also receive exclusive prayer updates and prayer requests and news updates about our work from the field. Now, just so you know, $50 a month covers one aftercare kit for one rescued child survivor in the Philippines, month after month. That's hope that you'll be providing for one new rescued survivor every single month. That's oppression that you're correcting for one survivor every single month. So I want to invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a Freedom Partner with us. Now I can tell that some of you here have been blessed and God has given you the ability to do this for two children a month at $100 a month, or five children at $250 a month, or 10 children at $500 a month. Awesome. Do that with us today. But here's another reason to become a Freedom Partner this morning. I've actually been told by one of our donors that for every single person at Calvary Baptist that signs up today, they will match your giving for an entire year. So what does that mean? Well, if you sign up at 50 a month, that becomes 100 a month for a whole year. Double the rescue. 100 a month becomes 200 a month for a whole year. And on and on. So do become a freedom partner with us today. Do take advantage of this opportunity to double your impact through your generosity. Uh, to become a freedom partner, you can just fill out the online form. Or you can go to ijm.ca forward slash cbc ijm.ca forward slash cbc, and you can sign up to be a freedom partner there. It only takes two minutes, but it's probably the most life-changing thing that you'll do this week. Here's the thing I'll say as some of you are prayerfully considering that and signing up. The work of justice is costly, and seeking justice Jesus' way will always cost you something. You know, for example, signing up as a freedom partner will will probably cost you something. It'll probably cost you dinner at your favorite restaurant once a month. But that's okay, because this is what happens when we follow Jesus. This is the cost of discipleship. I'll give you another example. You know, it costs $10,000 for one rescue operation. And that includes everything from legal fees to investigator fees to therapy hours, gas in the tank, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I have a feeling that there's someone here thinking, you know what? My family has had a great year. My business has had a great quarter. We can do this through our church in the name of our church. And, and your denomination actually has a campaign going on right now. The Fellowship National Office has a campaign with all fellowship churches going on right now called Together for Freedom, uh, where fellowship churches like yours are funding rescue operations. So a few questions about that, want to give towards that, talk to Pastor Matt, and that's another opportunity for you to be generous with us. And I promise you, we'll put your funds to good use. But let me close with a picture of hope. With a picture of what the Holy Spirit can do through his people when all of us step up to the plate. You see, when we first started working in the Philippines, we were told that the justice system was too broken. We were told that brothels and bars, and we investigated this through undercover investigators, found out ourselves that brothels and bars in cities like Cebu were crowded with children being trafficked for sex. Our goal was to see a 20% reduction 
and the prevalence of children being sold for sex. So from 2006 to 2010, our team in Cebu worked alongside local authorities to rescue and restore survivors of trafficking and to hold the criminals accountable. And then it was time to see if children in Cebu were safer than before. Again, our goal was a 20% reduction. We thought if we could reduce this thing by 20%, we'd be putting a permanent dent in slavery. But because of the Filipino church and because of the Filipino government stepping up to the plate, we actually saw a 72% drop in child sex trafficking in this city. Praise God. So we launched similar programs in two other cities in the Philippines, in Manila and Pampanga, to see if we could replicate these results. In Manila, we documented a 75% reduction. And in Pampanga, we saw an 86% drop in children being trafficked for sex. This is, what the, this is what the Holy Spirit has already done in the Philippines through his church. Imagine, just imagine with me what the Holy Spirit could do all over the world if all of us step up to the plate as Christians. So today we talked about three things. We talked about a crisis, a command, and a choice. The crisis is the sin of injustice. The command is to seek justice. And the choice is whether or not we obey this command of joining God in the renewal of all things. William Carey had a choice. He could either just preach the gospel or he could do both, preach the gospel and seek justice. Well, William Carey responded in generosity. And by the end of his time in India, by the end of his life, he played a huge role in, ab in, in the abolition of bride burning across northern India. But not only that, by the end of his life, he also translated the Bible into more than six different languages and portions of the Bible into more than 29 different languages. William Carey did both. He preached the gospel and he lived the gospel by seeing justice, by seeking justice. Calvary Baptist, may we also go and do the same. Let me close in prayer. <coughs> Father God, thank you for... Uh, this generous church community. Thank you for um, the ways in which you've allowed this church to already be a blessing among the nations uh, and to the nations coming here to Ottawa, sponsoring refugee families. And God, I pray that you would show us next steps, that you would lead us and guide us and, and, and teach us how you want us to respond to what we've heard this morning from your word. Father, we love you. We ask all these things in your son's name.